Hi, I'm Erica Kesman. Welcome to Left to Our Own Devices, a show that explores how to bring our human to work and to life. Because left to our own devices, we're not connecting. Today, my guest is Liz Fosling. Liz is an expert on how to make work better and the co-author and illustrator of the books, No Hard Feelings and Big Feelings, which comes out today, April 26, 2022. Liz also leads content and communications at Humu, a company that uses behavioral science to make it easy for leaders and their teams to improve. Liz's writing and data visualization projects have appeared on CNN, The Economist, The Financial Times, and NPR. I'm so excited that she is spending time with us today. Liz, it is so great to see you. Thanks uh, for being here today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to speak with you. Well, it's funny. I just got your book in the mail yesterday and happened to be sitting here wearing a yellow shirt and it matches. (laughs) All good. All good things. So let's just dive right in. I... I'm excited that I've been able to read the book and and really get to get at some of the core of the issues. You know, you and Molly said you wrote this book to convince yourselves that you would be okay. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so I would say in 2019, late 2019, we both went through really challenging situations in our personal lives, but then you know spilled into our work lives. Molly went through, she was having chronic pain issues, which resulted in some suicidal thoughts. And then I was losing my father-in-law to a 10-year battle with cancer. And I think the tail end of that for anyone who's gone through it is just horrendous. And then also had like some physical pain, probably just the emotions manifesting as that. And we had already done, I would say like seven years of research into emotions and how to work through them. And so we were journaling, we had therapists, you know, we basically are like privileged white women. We had good lives and yet it just wasn't working. Like we still both felt completely bowled over by our feelings. And so this book came out of that, of our search for when things get really hard, like these most challenging periods of our lives. What do you do then when maybe the weekly therapy doesn't pull you out of it? Mm -hmm. It's both how can you recover from it, but we also try to give advice, which we were looking for of how do you just even move through it? How do you get through that really, really hard day in the hope of like, maybe the next day will be better. And you also, you wrote, you know, we're here to say you're not alone and also help to figure out how to cope with your big feelings. And that's what I love about your work. I mean, it's, there's data and there's science and there's stories, but then there's always a, you know, here are some things that you can try. And I think people are, are really craving that right now. So one of the things I think a lot about in my work and with my clients is, you know, we don't want to go back to March of 2020, but we also don't want to forget about what we, what we saw and how we felt in a, in a positive way. And what I saw was leaders and people in general being being vulnerable. We didn't have a choice, right? We were on Zoom or on Teams and the dogs in the background, the kids in the background. And, you know, my mom passed away a month into the pandemic. I mean, I didn't have a choice but but to be but to be real. And so my question is, well, and and from an, an engagement perspective, people shared that they felt more connected, maybe because we were all in it together in the beginning of this. So how do we move on, but not move on and retain some of those 
feelings of connection that, that came out of this thing we were all experiencing together. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'm really sorry to hear about your mom. And also I'm sure the timing was just really hard for that. It's yeah, it's funny because Molly and I actually originally pitched this book to our publisher in January of 2020. So before this March mm-hmm. moment, when we all oh were gosh. thrust into this crazy thing and Penguin originally was like, eh, big feelings. Do people really want to talk about this? Is like, it, this seems kind of depressing. We're not sure about this book. And then in June, 2020, they came back and were like, okay, this is the book we want to publish. <laughs> so I think it just speaks to that really sort of the change that happened in our personal lives at work too. And so my hope is that because we all went through this experience together and all experienced how nice it is to be vulnerable with one another, that that memory won't fade and we'll preserve that. I think, you know, some form of remote work seems to be sticking too. And so Mm -hmm. I also think when the, you know, when you do have the dog in the background or the little kid or the doorbell ringing, it just reminds you that your colleagues are human, that they have a life outside of work. So I think that might also contribute to it. But yeah, I think the the main thing is just, just that everyone continues to remind themselves, I am human. The person I'm working with is human. And it was really nice. I mean, it was hard, but it also actually made us feel more connected and probably ultimately like work together better as a team mm-hmm. when we were able to share more and be more open about what was going on within our lives and ourselves. Yeah. Your book, which I'm hoping everybody listening is going to buy, is structured in myths, you know, things that we assumed we knew about feelings. And I've been thinking a lot about myths as well. And one of the myths, you know, as you know, and we met through our work, because we're in similar spaces, I wrote a book called Bring Your Human to Work. And I often get this question, really? You know, human, how human? And so what are the, what is the, how do we manage our big feelings? We're spending, we spend a lot of time at work. And, and so what is the role? Can we be, can we share our feelings at work, but also be professional? And if so, how? Yeah, I love this question. And one of the things Molly and I always say is our work is not an invitation to be a feelings fire hose. So we talk about this a lot in the context of leadership and we have a practice that we call selective vulnerability. So it's really, how do you balance sharing, which builds trust and does bring teams together and increases performance over the short and long run, but you also you can't really overshare, right? It is still a workplace context. And especially if you're leading a team, part of your role is to create stability and clarity for that team. So the extreme example is, let's say there's a pandemic. If you show up to the next meeting and you're just like, okay, everyone, acknowledging the pandemic, let's get to the agenda. That's a horrible way to start the meeting because people are just going to be like this. I'm talking to a robot. How can you have no reaction? I don't trust you. I feel no connection to you. I don't feel heard. I don't want to work here anymore. You also can't come in and start like sobbing on the call and saying, I didn't sleep at all last night. This is so, so hard. You know, I I think there's it's obviously context dependent. There might be people at work with whom you can do that. And that's amazing. But in general, as a leader, that's going to completely destabilize your team. And while they might feel connected to you, they're also going to be like, oh my God, are we even, are we all going to get laid off? Like what's going to happen to the company? This is really bad and I'm terrified. 
So what we say is pairing those open moments that allow for connection with a path forward. So you can come in and say, look, this is so hard and I didn't sleep last night and I'm sure you're all feeling it too. I actually want to set aside half the meeting today just to like talk about what we're all going through. But I also want to assure you that here's what I'm doing to support all of you. If you need anything, here's where you can go. Here's what I'm doing to make sure the business remains stable, that your jobs remain secure. And so again, it's this, I have emotions. Some of them are really, really difficult. You will have them too. That's perfectly okay. But as your leader, I'm still thinking about how to make sure that we're all okay together in the future. Wow. I love that. I love that. (laughs) And you're right. And it gives everyone listening an approach and a, and a strategy for, for how to deal with it. So thank you for that, because I couldn't have said it better myself. And I've been thinking about that a lot and getting that and getting that question. We are recording this on April 14th, 2022, in advance of your book coming out next week. And many people in the world these days are talking about return to office. Hopefully they're not saying return to work because many of us have been working a lot more than we did even before March of of 2020. And as you said, remote remote work isn't going away. So what are your thoughts about, I guess my, my gut would tell me that it's easier to connect and share emotions and feelings when you're face-to-face, we're not going to all be face-to-face five days a week anymore. And I think that there's positives in that too. Do you have advice on how to how to be human and and bring your feelings, you know, when you're on Zoom or when should we be face-to-face and and how can leaders come up with a plan around that? Yeah, it's definitely possible to still open up and form connections over Zoom. I, it just takes a little more intention. Mm -hmm. And I will say I am an introvert. My job involves a lot of writing and thinking. So I personally love working from home. I think back on being in an open office floor plan and it boggles my mind how I got anything done ever because <laughs> it's <just like> so <laughs> overstimulating. So I think the keys are when you are in person, really prioritizing relationship building and connection and seeing that as how you are going to perform better long-term. So taking the time to go to lunch, to you know talk about your personal lives, to walk around the office, to chat, to like grab a snack in the kitchen, these things that we don't see as being quote unquote productive. But again, it's like the glue that will get you through the harder times when you're not in an office together. So really being purposeful about your in-person time. And then when you are remote or you're not in the same place, I think it's explicitly creating space to talk about emotions. So making sure at the start of a meeting, you're not immediately diving into agenda items. This is a huge tendency that I have, especially as the day goes on. And I've been in back-to-back meetings. Like if you have a meeting with me at 4 p.m., you will notice that I'm just like, I want to get off this call. (laughs) What is the thing that we need to talk about? Let's make the decision. I'm ready to go. But I've I've learned to kind of take a deep breath and say, okay, we should have that five minutes just to check in with one another. And it actually makes the call much, much nicer. Mm -hmm. And I find myself like getting sucked into the personal conversations and it's really, really lovely. So I think it's just, it just requires you to be more intentional and have that moment of, what do I want out of this meeting? What is my goal in connecting with this person? And then how can I structure the next 30 minutes to make that happen? Right. Right. It's, it's, you want to have that connection. You also want to get work done. Yeah. 
you know, yeah. I saw in the pandemic, people would spend in March of 2020, 60 minutes of a 60 minute meeting checking in six months out, a year out, maybe it was half the meeting, 30 minutes of 60. And now people will say, well, I, I, I we got to get stuff done. And so there is a role for both. So I appreciate that. What I also thought about as you were talking was there could be people and just this real, like this self-reflection that you just did by saying, I see as the day go on, I am quicker to jump into the agenda. Maybe there's certain days where you don't have any meetings after two o'clock and, and giving yourself that, that break, or even just shifting in your mind that you know, the importance of it. So I don't know, all really interesting ways to approach it. Yeah. I love the point about kind of curating the schedule that works for you. I think that's one of the benefits of being remote is that it's a little easier to figure out like what time are the best meetings? When do you need the break? And then I think even putting that on your calendar, like I, it's so somehow I always forget how restorative it is to just step away from my computer and walk outside. And I'm lucky enough to live in California where that's an option year round, but every time (laughs) Like, how did I, you know, like, wow, just being outside and in the sun for five minutes has this huge impact and I'm just always not doing it. So even I really struggle. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I think that, I think that's, that's right. It's, it's some, a woman shared with me once on a, in a meeting that she has a, a ritual that she calls 20 by 20 by 20. Every 20 minutes, she takes a 20 second break, 20 feet from her computer. You know, so yours could almost, (laughs) it doesn't have to be 20 by 20 by 20, but you know, every X amount of time, like you open the door, you take in the the sun and the vitamin D and like those little things that shift, right? Your mood, your emotions. Yeah, totally. Really great. All right. So one of the things you know, we've all been hearing the term great resignation, great reset, great reshuffle, lots of different ways to talk about um, the, the changes with people leaving jobs. One of the things that I think about is the importance of beginnings and endings. Like this is a time when we can really, you know, start over. We can, you know, I like the phrase start as you mean to go on, you know, when you're bringing in and when you're onboarding and when you're offboarding. So my so I have a couple of different questions, both in terms of writing this book, but also, you know, in your, your day job at, at Humu, I've heard you on some podcasts where you've had jobs where you've had horrible or it's literally zero onboarding, yet it seems like there's some pretty intentional onboarding. And the reason why I'm kind of linking these two questions together is that I think when we think about the, the place and the role of emotions at work on your way in or even on your way out when maybe your emotions are going are running really high and you're angry or whatever it is if you're the manager and someone's leaving what are ways that you can can capture that in a, in a really positive way i mean i guess we'll start with onboarding in your experience have you seen examples where where leaders can show in the beginning that it is okay to 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 have selective vulnerability and share your emotions it might be a great way to to start off somebody in your, in, in terms of their, their journey with your company. That was very long-winded, but you know, it's <laughs> a lot of different pieces. So I apologize. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And I think the first thing is that I think is really important for leaders to remember too, especially as we were talking about the return to offices, is that is a beginning. So even if a person has been at your company 10 years, this is a whole new way of working. Their whole lives have been disrupted for two years. And so there's sort of a re-onboarding process that needs to happen. So it's also really important to think about 
how do you make sure you're supporting them through that, even if it's not traditional onboarding? But when it comes to kind of any form of onboarding, the two things I've seen work really well. And these are both intended to help the new person or person doing the onboarding overcome this totally normal fear that we have where it's like you did the interview, you got the job offer, you felt elated, you felt so accomplished. And then as your start date approaches, all the anxieties start to creep in. So why did they hire me? Do they remember that they hired me? Am I going to be able to do a good job here? Will I fit in? And so your first day is usually really nerve wracking. And so one specific thing that my boss, Laszlo Bach at Humu, used to be the former head of HR at Google. He, it was so funny because I had read his book and like knew what he was doing and it was still so effective. (laughs) Like even (laughs) everyone is aware of this, but he was like, Hey, this is your first day. And I just want to reinforce like the interview, the audition is over. Like you're not auditioning anymore. You're here. And this is, we want you to grow and learn and ask a lot of questions. You're going to make mistakes but you don't need to be worried about your position. Like you, that part is over. And so I just want you to feel comfortable reaching out to anyone, flagging things that are confusing. That's also really useful for us to know. And then saying like, I was, I always am nervous when I first start a job. So yeah. I think it's that like, it's totally fine. The audition is over. You made it. We're so glad you're here. I also get nerves at the beginning of anything. You don't need to read into that. And then the second thing comes from the organizational design firm IDO, where Molly, my co-author, used to work. And it's something called an interview. So it's a combo between enter and interview. So they ask everyone who interviewed you, the new hire, to write down A, what really impressed them during the interview, B, the skills you're bringing that the team really needs, and then C, just something they want to get to learn more about you. And are you okay? <laughs> yeah, sorry, we're doing this. I literally have all of a sudden something in my eye. Totally so, fine. I just don't want to like, like keep like talking. Bug in my eye. Okay, yeah. You keep going. You keep going. I'm totally listening about the interview other than the fact yes. that there's like a bug, <laughs> bug in my eye. <laughs> oh, I just didn't want to keep rambling on. While no, like, I am. I'm no, no, no. <laughs> there you go. We're keeping it, keeping it real. Okay, I can see Yeah, that. totally. Okay, so yeah, three things. What impressed them in the interview what the skills the person is bringing and something they want to get to learn more about you. And then on your first day, you get a Google Doc or a card or whatever with all these little notes, which again, is just this, the audition is over. We're so excited you're here. You're bringing all these valuable skills to the team. Please lean into your abilities. That's why we hired you. So those are two that I think are really effective. Yeah, I I love the audition thing because you can just see somebody walking in with their shoulders up to their ears and they say that and it's saying like, we wanted you, we wanted you for a reason and you are here. So I love that. What about on the way out? Because I've also been seeing a lot of articles recently about these boomerang employees that all these people are leaving and then they realize that the grass wasn't always greener. It was a little brown maybe. And, and, you know, if you leave in a certain way, you know, and again, there's so many emotions around, especially right now with people leaving. Just curious if, if in your work, you know, personal or as you've been doing this research, it's very emotional when people leave. Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah. So we talk about this a bit in the book, in the burnout chapter too, of just thinking through, if you want to leave your job, make sure you're running towards something, not running away from something. Mm. So it often feels really good to rage quit and have the new thing lined up. 
But if you haven't actually thought through what do you not like about your current job? What do you want to be different in your next role? And making sure that the next role actually is better for you, that's when you end up kind of in the same place six months later, just at a different company. So I think it's really important not just to like rush out the door in this burst of freedom and then rush into kind of the same space. On the employer side, I think it's this, you know, knowing that these people might come back and also like it's business, you know, people are going to leave your company at some point if they most likely, especially. Well, and zero, and you don't want, you don't want zero turnover. I mean, that's bad too. Yeah. And they might go on and get promoted and then like buy your product and be this amazing champion for you. So I think on both sides, it's really thinking through just maintaining the relationship being open, continuing to have that connection and really not burning any bridges. And again, that goes for both the manager, the leader, and the employee who's moving on. Yeah. I think it's hard, but I think people need to really think about that these days. Yeah. All right. So one of your chapters is about uncertainty. And, you know, I have been, we've all been seeing, we've taken two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, two steps back. I just heard a a podcast the other day with Amy Cuddy, who coined this term, the pandemic flux syndrome. And all of a sudden, and then I was mm. listening to that and reading your book and there that, at least for me, I will be honest and open, like the, the uncertainty and that lack of control for me is causing so much stress in, in, in my life and work and, and with my kids, everything is so uncertain. The myth that you talk about in the book is that you just need to be more resilient, which I sort of read as, okay, suck it up, everybody. So. Talk about that and and some ideas of of how to address it because I think it's one of the biggest things going on right now. Yeah, so we I think this was very true. I would say in the middle of 2020, where resilience was like the antidote to everything. It was like, oh, you're a single mom and you're you have two kids at home and no help, and you're also working full time from home. Resilience, just try resilience. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, yeah, that's not really cutting it. But I think. The biggest thing is that like there are environments that make it easier for us to be resilient. So this is also like speaking to managers and leaders of flagging for people, like here's how much stability we're able to put in place. One of the best tips I've heard on that end was around just like creating a three-month mission for your team. And I think that is just like, no matter what happens, it's like, we're all going to try to be more connected. We're going to try to launch this thing. So even in the wake of uncertainty, you are creating some stability and three months is usually enough of a time. I mean, you know, the last two years, maybe not even, but usually you can plan for three months somewhat Mm -hmm. on the individual level. What I found most personally valuable is adopting this phrase. I am a person learning too. And so when Humu, the company where I work, when we went remote overnight, I remember feeling so much pressure to be like, oh my gosh, I'm a remote manager. People are really struggling. I need to have this all figured out. I need all the answers. Otherwise I'm a terrible leader and I'm failing. And then finally taking a step back a couple of weeks later to say, actually, I am a person learning to be a manager in a remote setting during a global pandemic. (laughs) That's just like such a different way of thinking about it. That also, I think, just shifts you to a growth mindset. So it opens you up to thinking, okay, what do I need to do to figure this out, to like learn effectively? I should probably ask my team for feedback. 
I should probably, you know, like maybe I can read some articles or talk to other managers. It just totally changes your perspective from beating yourself up for not Mm -hmm. knowing everything to starting to open up and be willing to reach out. And like, that's actually the path to improvement and to becoming this incredible, whatever it might be, manager, partner, person living in a new city, whatever the changes that you're going through. Wow. And would linking this back to what you said in the beginning, were you open to sharing some of that in terms of selective vulnerability with your team that, because no one had managed remotely in a pandemic, right? I mean, clearly it wasn't just you. Yeah, I did eventually. I mean, I think it it took a couple of weeks for me to finally, you know, also when you're in an emotionally heightened state, it's just harder to kind of step back and be like, here's all the rational thoughts I'm going to have about my feelings. (laughs) So it took a little for all of the anxiety to settle, but then I did. Yeah. I talked with my reports and then also my own manager saying like, Hey, this is new. It's new for you. It's new for me. Let's talk about what is working, how you're feeling, how I'm feeling, what practices we can put in place. And then also framing all of that as an experiment. So not saying again, we need to have this figured out, but like, let's try a couple things. We'll check in in a month, see what we like, see what we want to change. So I think it's just the, especially in times of uncertainty, trying to put some structure in place, but maintaining flexibility and vulnerability around that is really key. Yeah. That's a lot of what I'm hearing today is, is matching, you know, this two pronged approach of vulnerability and emotions with structure and stability. And, and making sure that if you're going to have one, you have the other, you know, to, so that, you know, the, the team doesn't begin to implode and say, oh my gosh, she's never going to have this figured out. I'm, I'm one foot out the door. So I, and, and it's great to model that I think for, for employees as well, as they become managers, you know, sort of this whole cycle. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I have so many questions. So, so the book is struck, there's seven emotions in the, Mm -hmm. right. In these chapters. So Maybe you could just share a little bit of, of an overview with on the book and how did you pick those emotions and maybe list them and, you know, tell the readers, you know, what they're going to see when they, when they read your book. Yeah. So the seven emotions or emotional states are uncertainty, comparison, anger, burnout, perfectionism, despair, and regret. So you can see why Penguin at first was like, this is a dark book, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's really So again, the book was born out of these really difficult periods that Molly and I both went through. And then, so we had, I mean, we had, I think a list of 15 different emotions. Then we started just talking to hundreds and hundreds of people. So people who had read our first book, No Hard Feelings, people who follow us on social media, our friends, just kind of whoever. And we also ran a survey. And from that, we're able to narrow it down to these seven, which seemed to be the most common and what people like had the strongest reactions to. So I just remember really distinctly when we asked about perfectionism, so many of our readers, and this is also across, like no matter where they were living, race, gender, were like, oh yeah, that is, that's been really something I've been struggling with. So it really came out of, again, hearing from a huge range of individuals that these were emotions that they we're dealing with and grappling with. And it's also, you know, these seven feelings are part of life, right? Like if you are lucky enough to live long enough, part of that is you're going to experience all of these things. Mm -hmm. Like, especially when, like, for example, regret, there's all this 
social media attention on a life of like hashtag no regrets. And that's just impossible because you can only live one life and choose one path. And so inevitably there's a path you didn't pick. Right. <laughs> You're going right. to kind of sometimes be like, I wonder what would have happened if I took that job or like went on that trip or didn't do this. So I think even though the book was really born out of our sort of time bound experiences, plus the pandemic, I think it, it kind of, I hope that it contains timeless advice. Yeah. Well, I, I'm sure you're excited to birth this into the world in a week. So the final question is a question that everybody on this podcast gets, and it is, what do you do, Liz, in your life that makes you feel most like you? Hmm. I, this is hard and it makes me feel antisocial, but I try to have one weekend day with no plans. And so I really love to draw a lot of the illustrations in the book. That's kind of just like my form of therapy and meditation. And I think it's, as I've gotten older, it's really just accepting this sort of creative, reclusive side of myself, which I think if you're in the professional world or you have friends, it's like really hard in the modern world to carve out time to do those things, to reflect, to be quiet. So that's my, my goal is always like, Sunday or Saturday, I wake up, there's nothing on the calendar. I can just putz around. I can drink my coffee. I kind of like can process the week and then start to engage in this creative practice that like really is restorative for me personally. Great. And it sounds like it's your ritual. It totally is. (laughs) The power of rituals. Power of Rituals, which for those listening is also in your book. So I won't give that away, but it's, and I love that studies wrote, studies have proven that rituals help people feel better, even though, even when they don't believe that rituals work. So (laughs) really excited. And I love that you're writing about, about rituals, something clearly near and dear to my heart, but I think you're right. If, if you, if that's your ritual and it restores you, you know, and, and to celebrate that and it enables you to be back on Monday, you know, raring to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've also, I think I felt it feels weird, but I think I've learned to, to just talk to my friends about it and be like, Hey, I have this rule where every weekend I just don't do anything on Saturday or Sunday this weekend. It's Sunday. I'd love to see you, but can I see you? I don't know. People are very understanding. And I remember that was, even that was such a hard thing for me to say to someone at one point. Cause I was like, oh, I'm such a weirdo. <laughs> So I think it's, again, just like being open about your needs and still communicating, like, I really care about you. I just need this for me. Yeah. And I'm sure the reaction from some of them is, yeah, well, I need this for me, or I need to go yeah. on a 10, a 10 mile run every Sunday to get my, you know, yayas out and get my endorphins. Right? I mean, that's, we're human, right? So we need different yeah. things to make us feel like that. So Thank you, Liz, so much. I know right before a book launch, you have a million things to do and places to be, but I really appreciate you spending spending a half an hour with, with us and our Left to Our Own Devices listeners. And uh, I'm really yeah. excited for both you and Molly for next week. Thanks so much. Yeah, this was a great conversation. I really appreciate you having me on. All right, take care. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Left to Our Own Devices. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. If you want to receive my monthly-ish update on all things human at work, or just want to say hello, email me at erica at ericakeswin.com. Stay safe, stay connected, and I'll see you soon.